<laughs> hey, listen, thank you for coming to church this morning. Thank you for making God a priority in your life. I believe because you made God a priority and you set him at the top of your list on your Sunday, that he will honor you and he will pour out his blessings on you and your work week will be so much better because you honored God. If you believe that, can you clap your hands and just thank him for it? Yeah. I believe it. I want you to get your Bible out, and I want you to turn it on, and you're slow, but you're worth waiting for. And I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. Uh, If they're on their Bible, make sure that they're on the Bible app and not watching the Cardinals. I got my alert anyway. Oh, did we not kill the Cubs? Oh, not they awesome? So good. Yeah, I saw your office. Don't be yelling, yeah. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. I want to speak to you on the difference between being tired and being weary, or basically the spiritual warfare in and of itself. Title of the message, Receiving Your Second Wind. Receiving Your Second Wind. The Apostle Paul is writing in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. And would you do me a favor, and let's read it off the screen out loud. Something happens when we energize the atmosphere all around us with God's spoken word. I believe when you speak the word, it fills the the auditorium and energizes the atmosphere. So let's read it together. One, two, three, ready, read. Don't grow weary in doing what is right. I love that. For in due season... If anyone should understand that, it should be in a rural area that has farms all around us. Everyone say due season. Say it again, due season. For in due season you shall reap if you faint not. Now let's look at Isaiah, the 40th chapter and the 31st verse. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31. uh, And let's read it together. Ready, read. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be, they shall walk and not faint. We all grow tired sometimes. Tired of trying to make our businesses grow. Tired of looking for that elusive job that seems just out of our reach. Possibly tired of dealing with a sickness or dealing with a rebellious child. Tired of being lonely if we're single and Tired of waiting to meet Mr. Wright or waiting to meet Mrs. Wright. I told the first service, I met Mrs. Wright, uh, and we've been married now almost 30 years. Problem is, I just didn't know her first name was always. But you learn. (laughs) I'm just see, that's not your wife, okay. Oh, that's her name too, They're, they're related. It's called female. Oh, she just said, preach it. Now, you get me all, you start messing with me and I forget what I'm doing. You might even be living in the house of your dreams or possibly raising wonderful children or a great job. But if you are not careful, we can lose our passion and allow weariness to set in. Notice, I have said we allow weariness to set in. And that's going to take on tremendous significance in just a moment. I watched a documentary about the Vietnam War. Uh, It was hosted by Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Now, Ollie North is kind of a long-distance hero of mine. I met him years ago as I was invited to sing at the inaugural Bicentennial Prayer Service at St. John's Cathedral for President George Walker Bush. 
and he was there, and so he's kind of been a hero. And in this documentary called War Stories, he said, in 1961, President Kennedy sent 100 Special Forces troops to South Vietnam. And he told the American people we'd only be there for two to three years and as counselors only. However, in 1963, Kennedy increased U.S. military personnel and special forces to 21,000. 21,000. And at the height of the Vietnam War, 2.5 million American soldiers had been deployed and was fighting in South Vietnam. 2.5 million. Listen, gang, that's roughly the size of the state of Rhode Island. 2.5 million. By the 1970s, the United States troops have been fighting overseas for nine long years. A four-star general by the name of Westmoreland was asked to come and testify before Congress. During his testimony, a congressman asked him this one-pointed question. He said, General, how are the troops doing? Newsweek magazine documented. Westmoreland said, Sir, our troops are weary. We never expected the war to go this long. Now they are dealing with fatigue. Our soldiers are physically tired, mentally tired, and emotionally they are spent. That's General Wes Moreland. And yet, it wasn't until 1974 that the last remaining U.S. personnel were evacuated from South Vietnam. Thirteen years total. Thirteen years. See, the military was facing the same question we often face as individuals, the question that many today are facing right now. What I love about the move of the Holy Spirit is that I can prepare all week long to preach a certain thing, come to church, and the Lord takes over and changes everything. And that's what happened this morning for service when she stood up to sing that song on fear. The Holy Spirit said, no, we've got to change gears and go another direction. Aren't you glad that he's the one that's in charge? And so many times, we as individuals, we face the same thing. What do you do when the battle lasts longer than you expected? What do you do? And you're still waiting for the answer. You're still praying for that child or that family member to get their life back together. And you're doing what is right, like Galatians 6, 9 says. You're praying, you're fasting, you're giving, you're tithing, you're discipling, you're sending. You're doing everything you're supposed to do. What do you do when the war lasts longer than expected? And you're not seeing any changes. See, the word weary simply means to lose the sense of pleasure. To lose the sense of pleasure. To not feel the enjoyment that you once felt. When our soldiers were first shipped overseas, they were so excited, they couldn't wait to make a difference. They were showing actual footage on this documentary, and these young men were saying, we can't wait to make a difference. We can't wait to go over there and get those people off of the, out of the communist oppression. And they were so excited. Well, that's before the battle goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. They interviewed these soldiers as they were coming out of theater, they call it. They were headed home. And they said, well, how do you feel? And they said to the interviewer, it seemed like no matter how hard we fought, no matter what we did, we couldn't make a difference. The moment we did this, 
here came that. And the moment we dealt with that, here came this again. And friend, the same can happen to any of us who've been praying and fighting for something over a long period of time. See, the problem is when you allow weariness to set in, you'll be tempted to quit, to quit growing in the Lord, to quit praying for that wayward child, to quit believing you'll ever become healthy and ever become whole again, or to quit pursuing a God-given goal and a dream or the fulfillment of a godly vision that he planted in your life years ago, but you have yet to see the fulfillment of that vision. I heard a story about a woman who approached her pastor during the altar service, and she came forward with big tears, and she said, you know, pastor, you know why I'm here. She said, I had to go to town every week to the Mayo Cancer Center, and I didn't receive the, the answer that I was hoping for. She said, you know, pastor, I've gone through six months of intensive chemotherapy, and I was hoping and praying and believing that I would be done. But the doctors just told us, I've got to go through six more months of intensive chemotherapy. She looked at her pastor and she said, I don't believe I can make it. I am just so tired. I'm so disappointed. I'm emotionally spent. I don't think I can last another six months. The moment I heard that, I had to ask myself, is she tired or is she weary? And there's a major difference. You see, tired, you could take some time off. You go on vacation. If you're like me and my family, we go to Table Rock. We might rent a boat at State Park Marina. You go out for the afternoon. You go fishing. You go hunting. Do whatever you have to do. You're laughing. You sleep in. You eat pancakes. You go to Cracker Barrel. You're feeling great. And, you know, that's wonderful. Weary, no matter how much sleep you get, it's never enough. Weary, it seems like the battle just goes on and on and on. And like those soldiers, the moment you deal with this, here comes that. And the moment you deal with that, here comes this again. Suddenly the garage door breaks and it won't open. And then all of a sudden the dryer goes out. And then on top of the dryer, the kids come home and they had a car accident. And it's one thing after the next, after the next. And finally you're just spent and distracted. Weary goes so much deeper. Weary is a spiritual attack from the enemy. See, on the way to our victories, we will always face the weariness test. We'll be tempted to become discouraged and to give up. And listen, church, the test never comes when you're fresh. It never comes when you first start out. It always comes when you're tired because the devil knows that's when you are the most vulnerable. If you were here last week, you heard the youth pastor give a great message on faith in the, in the middle. It's amazing that I'm sitting in the airport and I'm traveling. We speak 50 weeks out of the year in conferences and conventions all over the country. And the Lord starts speaking to me about this church struggling because they're needing faith in the middle. And I called pastor and he said, you're not going to believe this, but our youth pastor just spoke the exact same message. Faith is easy at the beginning. And faith is easy at the end when you're retired and you see the fulfillment of all that God has promised. Oh, but it's difficult to have faith in the middle. And if we had time, I could develop for you a whole series of messages on all the heroes and the champions of faith that had to have faith in the process or faith in the middle. I would love to be the proverbial fly on the wall, so to speak, and to listen to a conversation 
between God and one of the heroes of faith. Wouldn't it be awesome to be in heaven and hear God talking to Mary? Because it might have sounded something like this. Morning, Mary. What's up? Morning, God. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Lord, I, Lord, I, I got a question. Lord, you said I was highly favored. Yes, Mary, you were highly favored. And Lord, you said that I was going to give birth to the Messiah. Yes, Mary, we chose you to carry the Messiah and give birth to the Messiah. She said, yeah, Lord, that was all wonderful. But you left some things out. Yes, Mary. See, Lord, you told me I'd give birth, but you never told me it would be in a manger with stinky donkeys and cows. And my parents wouldn't be there for the birth of their first grandchild. No, Lord, you left that little piece out. In the heart of a 13-year-old girl, I was struggling with that. Lord, you didn't tell me that after I gave birth that we would be on the run for the next two and a half years in Egypt because the king was trying to kill us. And I was only 15 years old, Lord. You, you left that part out too. And Lord, you didn't tell me faith for the middle. Lord, you didn't tell me that I would watch that firstborn drag across through the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem that would watch him beaten and bruised, spat upon, and have to gaze on a cross and hear him say, Mother, behold your child. And Lord, you didn't tell us in the process of having faith for the middle that we would be so broke that we would literally have to borrow a tomb from our next-door neighbor, Joe of Arimathea. But Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because when you read the story of Mary, she has the Magnificat. And she's always giving glory to God. Oh, if I had time, we could look at Joseph and David. We could look at Moses and Samuel. All who had to develop faith for the middle. And the devil knows that he cannot attack you, or the best time to attack you, is not at the beginning, but when you're tired. He always comes when you ask the most vulnerable. Why? Because the devil knows if you're a child of God, walking in the Spirit. Again, that's a key phrase, walking in the Spirit. So many times we don't understand what that phrase means. Walking in the Spirit is simply allowing the Holy Spirit of God to do in your life what he is called to do. You have to allow it. And the devil knows if you're a child of God, allowing God and the Holy Spirit to flow in your life, he knows if you're, if you're a Christian and you're living with a biblical worldview, well, that's a whole other subject, a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview simply means this. You believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. If you believe that, someone say amen. Every dot, every jot, every exclamation point, everything in there is the written word of God. So when you have a biblical worldview, what you do is you filter all of your life. You filter your choices. You filter your finances. You filter your counseling. You filter how you raise your children. You filter what you watch. You filter what you go through. Everything in life filters through God's word. Not man's word, not politicians, not the Republicans, the Democrats, the Independents, or the Tea Party, but what the written word of God stands for, that means you have a biblical worldview. And when you have a biblical worldview and you're walking with God, the devil knows he cannot take you to hell. 
So, he will look to heap as much hell on your life in this life as he possibly can. Why, pastor? In hopes that you throw your hands in the air and give up. That your weariness will cause you to walk away from under the protection of the Heavenly Father. Oh, listen, gang. That's what he did with the prodigal son. I didn't share this in the first service, but I'm going to take a little more liberty second service. Is that okay? You really don't have a choice. I'm going to do it anyway. The prodigal son is not a rags to riches story. He already had people running his bathwater. He already had a silver spoon in his mouth. He already had silk sheets. No, no. The prodigal son, it wasn't that when he got his money, he was going to move up like George Jefferson, moving on. No, that, that, that's, you're slow, but they're worth waiting for. No, no. The prodigal son is not about him getting his money and making his life better. It's all about control. It wasn't enough to have the blessings of the father. He wanted to control the father. And there are so many people, it's not enough to serve God and allow God to use us. No, no, no. We want to control how God does it. And that's the story of the prodigal. Why? Because the devil was able to convince him that there's a party going on out there and you're missing it. Whoop, whoop, you're missing the whole thing. And suddenly he gets anxious. And he opens the door to weariness and he begins to look out. And the devil will heap as much hell on your life as he possibly can so that he can get you out from the protection of the Heavenly Father. You see, the devil couldn't, t- couldn't touch that boy when he's under his father's protection. He had to get him to come out and play. And the moment you go out and play, that's when he has you. Trying to heap as much hell on your life. Revelation 12 says he's the accuser of the church, talking about the enemy or the devil, and he accuses us day and night. Why? Well, to create a train of thought that so fits your way of thinking that you suppose it comes to your own line of reasoning. And suddenly these thoughts come. And the moment you dwell on those negative thoughts, he will double the attack. He cannot read your mind, but if you bite on that thought, he will be relentless against you. That's what we call spiritual warfare of the mind or the battlefield of the mind. And he'll create that train of thought. And if you're single, the thoughts will come. You're never going to find the right person. You're you're never going to get married. If you're struggling with your weight, you'll never stay on Jenny Craig. You'll never stay on Weight Watchers. You can't do this. If you're struggling in your finances, why are you tithing? You can't tithe. You can't live on that. Over and over and over and over again. And the accusations never, never give up. Your wife doesn't love you anymore. She doesn't care for you anymore. Your husband doesn't care for you anymore. He doesn't understand you. And one after the other after the other. And the moment you bite, that's when you just open the door to weariness. That's when that spiritual attack just begins to flood in on you. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, don't grow weary in doing what is right. For in due season you shall reap if you faint not. You see, the devil uses it to create isolation. Isolation is an amazing thing. It can be good and it can be bad. A rancher in West Texas, I was speaking at a very large conference for probably several thousand pastors, and there was a rancher there who was a bivocational pastor, and he came up and he says, hey, Pastor Randy, you know what? Uh, This thing about isolation. He said, when I pull out into the field and I see all the cows around the water, that's a good thing. I said, yeah, that is. 
Now, spiritually speaking, water is a typology of the Holy Spirit. And as long as you stay around the Holy Spirit, you're going to stay okay. But he said, if I see a cow out there in the distance and they're all alone, they're only out there for one of two reasons. One, to give birth, or two, they're diseased and they're going to die. And the Holy Spirit whispered. Oh, I could preach a series of messages on the importance of you developing the understanding of the whispers of the Spirit of God in your life. And the Holy Spirit whispered. He said, I led Jesus into the wilderness to be isolated. Remember, he was led up to be tested or tempted. And it was just prior to going to Calvary. But every time the devil came to him, Jesus never said, Satan, I bind you. Satan, I bind you. What did he say? It is written. It is written. It is written. There was a fresh word coming from him. There was fresh hope. There was fresh anointing. There was a seed of faith. There was a bubbling up of God's presence. He, it is written. It is written. If you feel isolated in your life or your marriage right now, but yet there's still a seed of hope, there's still a fresh anointing coming, you still got scripture flowing, that's how you know the Spirit of God in you is preparing you to birth something new, to birth a fresh anointing, a fresh healing. However, if you feel isolated in your marriage and you two are kind of like two ships in the night passing each other and all you have is hopelessness, all you have is feelings of, of we'll never make it, I'll never be healed, I, I, we'll never pay our bills, we're going under. If it's one thing after another in the negative thing, that's how you know the devil's trying to take you out. He's trying to take you out. And you have to understand that it's spiritual warfare. It's right where we are. And that's why Paul says, don't grow weary. If he says don't grow weary, that means I have a choice. I have a choice on what I allow myself to dwell on. Two words that are key in this whole passage. Look at the text. Faint not. Faint not. Everyone say faint not. Come on, say it again. Faint not. In other words, if you don't give up, if you shake off the weariness and recognize the spiritual attack, if you put on a new attitude, knowing that God is still in control, or I've learned in 30 years of ministry, if you dig your heels into the promises of God and not allow what you see to affect what you know. I want you to say with me, I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. Ready? I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. Say it again. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. I know my God is able. I know my God is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I know my God is still the Alpha and the Omega. I know he's still the beginning and the end. I know he's the sea walker and the blind healer. I know he's still God Almighty. I know those things in my heart. So I cannot allow the circumstances of life to steal who I am in Christ. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. I wish I could say I came up with that saying, because that's an amazing saying. But no, no, it comes from a little Puerto, Rican grand, little Puerto Rican mother in New York City about 1962. She moved her family from Puerto Rico, where my family is from, to New York City. But when they got there, it was at the height of the gang violence. And her son, Victor, by 12 years old, was already involved in the gangs. By the age 14, he was hooked on heroin, doing drugs, and had already been arrested for all kinds of violence. At 14 years old, 
He was already a feared gang member. She didn't have much, but every day her and her sister would go to a little storefront church and they would pray God-sized prayers. And every night when Victor came in at 3 a.m. in the morning, he would find his mother on her knees and she would jump up and she would say, Victor, God is going to get you out of the gangs. God is going to put the healing touch in your hand. He's going to deliver you from, from alcohol and from drugs. And he said, oh, Mom, you're crazy. And she said, no, he's going to make you a pastor. He's going to make you a pastor. She got a call from the principal from the school, and she went there, and all the teachers were waiting for her when she got in the office. They said, your son is no longer welcome in this school. We are so afraid of him, he's not going to graduate. We believe he's going to the state penitentiary, and he'll end up in the electric chair. She said, I stood up and I wiped my eyes and I extended my hands and I thanked them all for what they tried to do for my victor. And as I walked down that hallway of that school, that public school, she said, I looked at all the lockers, I saw all the kids, and I began to say out loud, I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. I know my God is able. I know my God can deliver. I know my God can do all things. What she didn't know was that God was speaking to another pastor in the Midwest here by the name of David Wilkerson. And the Lord called David Wilkerson to leave the Midwest and to go to New York City. And he's preaching out there on the, on the, on the, on the streets. And Victor came around the corner and he saw David Wilkerson and he bowed in the, in the gutter and he gave his life to Christ. David Wilkerson laid his hands upon him and the Lord delivered Victor from drugs and alcohol. But let me tell you the rest of the story. He is now pastoring one of the greatest churches in America. Victor Torres pastors a church in Virginia that I preach in all the time. And they are reaching out to thousands and thousands of people around the world. I often wonder when I walk into the lobby of that amazing church, what would have happened if that mother of Victor Torres would have allowed weariness to keep her from calling out on God? Weariness will steal everything the Lord has. Instead of complaining about how long the battle is taking, we should say, this too shall pass. I know the situation is not permanent. It's only temporary. I'm not camping here. I'm moving forward in Jesus' name. If you believe what I'm preaching, can you clap your hands and give the Lord praise? Yes. So wait, Pastor, are you telling me if weariness is a choice, I do not want to make the choice So how do I know I'm making the choice for weariness? The moment that you dwell on the negative things and thoughts that come into your life. The moment you just allow it to play over and over and over again. Well, I just can't stop it. Well, yes, you can. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things things. You know, this is what kept the children of Israel out of the promised land, weariness. They were so close to their victory. They were just about to see God do a miracle, and they got to the city, and they sent the spies in. And the spies came back, and they said, we can't do it. Remember, they went through obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. God gave them a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. They had many victories in the wilderness, but they were so weary emotionally and spiritually, the devil had beat them up on this path. They get there and they say, we can't do it. It'll never happen. And 10 men 
talk 2.5 million people out of God's promise. Oh, did you catch what I just said? Ten people with negative thinking stole all the blessings. See, weariness causes you to forget all that God has done in the past. When you're weary, all you see are the obstacles. When you're weary, all you see is your needs are not being met. And 2.5 million people went on a death march for the next 40 years because 10 men forgot who they were in Christ. And sometimes we wonder, churches are growing, they're moving, they're really doing mighty things for God, and suddenly a negative thought might come, and people start getting a little negative, and the minority talk the majority out of the blessings of God. 2.5 million went on a death march. You see, when you're weary, you have a tendency to forget all the miracles that God had performed in the past. Well, we can't do it. We can't do it. The walls are too high. Wait, 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 wait. When you came out of Egypt, 2.5 million of you, by the way, almost 3 million people, didn't God give you Jericho where the walls were so high? Didn't God give you 16 tons of manna every day? You know, the United States government figured out, this is our tax dollars at work, the United States government figured out it would take 16 tons of manna to keep 2.5 million people from starvation every day, 16 tons of manna. It would take 11 million gallons of water to keep them from dehydration. And if it happened today, it would take two freight trains at the cost of $6 million a day. But God didn't do it for one day, my friend. He did it for 14,600 days. That's how long 40 years turns out to be. And we come in here with our thimble full of faith saying, Lord, can you get me a job? Lord, does this tithe thing really work? When we're praying for healing for a loved one, oh, I've been there. Lord, I'm not seeing any changes. It's so difficult, Lord. They forgot about the miracles. They grew weary. Would you say to yourself real soft, don't grow weary. Are you ready? Don't grow. Say it again. Don't grow weary. Listen, gang, it's not the size of the problems in our life that's important Rather, it's our perception of those problems and how big or small you make them in your own mind. It's a well-known fact that what you focus on, you will magnify. And if you only focus on the problems or what you don't have or all the things that will never work out, all you're doing is making it bigger than it really has to be. And that's why King David said in Psalm 34 and 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. He was saying, if you want to make something bigger, then don't make your problems bigger. Magnify the Lord and make him bigger in your life. You're talking about a man that understands what it is to have his entire life destroyed at Ziklag. See, Ziklag was his hometown. They all came back home, he and his warriors, to find out that their wives and children had been taken into slavery and their houses and homes and villages had been burned. And the Bible says, David sitting in the ashes of his home. The ashes of his home. When his men wanted to kill him. Men who had given their life for him the day before. Now they want to kill him. David lifts up a praise. And in the Bible says, on the wings of a song. David changed his circumstance. He began to praise the Lord. 
He was saying, make your God bigger. Learn to make your God bigger. See, when you're facing weariness, you have to encourage yourself in the Lord. If you don't, weariness will take over. Here's what happens. Let me give you the progressive steps. Weariness leads to discouragement. And when you are discouraged, you see the problem instead of the possibilities. You might want to write this down. When you're discouraged, you see the problem instead of the possibilities. Discouragement can lead to disillusion. You say, well, I don't know if I'm disillusioned, Pastor. Well, are you saying, I guess it's not going to work out for me? I guess God loves those other people more than he loves me? I guess my dreams and visions don't mean anything? That's how you know you're getting disillusioned. Disillusion can lead to a lack of discernment. Discernment where you can't see clearly and you're making poor choices. Poor choices. Poor choices. If you were to come to me and say, Pastor, would you pray my grown kids, they're good kids, but they're knuckleheads. Because they're not making good choices. I would look at you and say, you mean they don't have good judgment? Yes. Well, doesn't the Bible say judgment begins in the house of the Lord? And we have, in our Western mentality, we think that means that God's got a gavel or a hammer, and he's going to just nail you with it, you know. No, no, no. The word judgment, actually, in the actual Greek text, would be sound teaching or sound doctrine or sound thinking. So when it says judgment begins in the house of the Lord, the actual text in the Greek is sound teaching or good thoughts or good choices begin in the house of the Lord. And when you have discouragement, you get disillusioned. Disillusion will then begin to lead to a lack of discernment. And we all know what it is to make a poor choice. Kind of like when you were out there in the club, you know, and you're just getting it. And you're just out there, and you're just boogieing, you know. And they say, last call, last call. And you just boot, scoot, and boogie, man. It's just awesome. You just, some of you are looking at, you don't want to laugh, but you know it's the truth. And you're out there, and they say, last call. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, in the dark nightclub, you think you're dancing with Halle Berry. Everybody looks good at 2 o'clock in the morning in the dark. And you have, make a poor choice, and you go home with someone, and you wake up, and you go, oh, God. And you think you went home with Halle Berry. You find out it's Fidel Castro. <laughs> That's a poor choice. And when you make too many poor choices with everything else stacked up like a lack of discernment and discouragement, it leads to depression. And did you know that the Bible never says the word depression? But it does say in Isaiah 61 and 3, put on a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness or despair. Perfect illustration of this is King Saul would call David when David was just a shepherd into the throne room. And the Bible says in the King James, the 1611 version, King James, my grandmother, uh, she always thought that the King James version was the only authorized version. And it says that when David played his songs of praise, demons fled from Saul. And in our, again, in our Western mentality, we think, well, that's the brother's problem. He was demon-possessed. I mean, duh. No. The actual Greek text is 
When David played his songs of praise, the cares of life were lifted off of Saul. Big difference. Remember, he's a king over millions of people. He's got to feed them. He's got to clothe them. He's got to protect them. And when the heaviness of life would settle on Saul, the only time he got soulless was when a little boy would come in on his guitar and sing, I will bless thee, O Lord. I will bless thee, O Lord. With a heart of thanksgiving, I will bless thee, O Lord. And with my hands lifted up, suddenly the praise would begin to fill the room. The Bible says that God inhabits the what? Praises of his people. Key word, though, inhabit. The Greek word for inhabit means sits down upon. So when you begin to worship, my brother, the same power that invaded the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and raised to life again the three-day dead body of the Lamb of God, that same power comes and sits down on you. And if you're a child of God, you've got the Holy Spirit living in you. He moves from within you up on, up on. And we call that the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And there are so many times when we're weary, we can't even pray. I know when I'm dealing with weariness, usually it's when I'm out traveling, I'm speaking at conferences, and I'm on the way home. I haven't seen my wife maybe in a couple days, and I'm so physically exhausted, and I'm in purgatory. And I know some of you are thinking, okay, brother, you just lost me because uh, we don't believe in purgatory. Yes, I believe in purgatory. It's the holding place. It's called the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. <laughs> oh, you've been there. Or Chicago, that's just as bad, yes. Or Atlanta, Hartsfield. Or JFK. I'm in the mall. Somebody just said, oh. But usually when I'm in that airport, or, or an airport, and you've allowed that negative thought, Lord, we're not going to meet the finances this month. Lord, the churches just weren't giving, Lord. I, and suddenly all these thoughts hit you. And that's when I've learned that I've got to put on a garment of praise because I can't allow what I see to affect what I know. And I tell myself, Randy, don't talk about the way you are at the moment or the situation, but pray about the way you want to be. You have to have faith coming out of your mouth, Randy. And I start talking to myself, and what will happen is I'll grab my phone, and I'll call my mom, and I'll say, hey, mom, I'm really going through it. And uh, she says, okay, me, hold on. And, and she'll put it on speaker, you know. And I can hear her and my dad walking through the house, and they're just worshiping the Lord and singing. And I'll go find a window in the airport. If it's Dallas-Fort Worth, it's Terminal B, American Eagle. And I'll go lift my hands right there in that window. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, Pastor, that's so weird. Really? You're going to lift your hands in the airport? Well, evidently, you haven't seen the weird people in the airport. And that's why it's so important for you to lift your hands in church so that you can do it out there. And here's what I'll say. Lord, I need a refreshing and a restoration. Needing a refreshing 
does not mean that you have backslid or that you have sinned. It simply means in the heat of the battle, you've allowed yourself to be human. And you've opened the door to that negative thought. The devil's trying to drive a wedge between you and your family. The negative thoughts come. Well, they don't care about me anymore at that church. All they care about is Carthage. All they care about is those kids. All they care about is the little, little Bible, vacation Bible school. They're not meeting my needs. They're... That's a lie from the pits of hell. Or you say, well, we've reached our peak. You know, what more can we do? We're just a little church out here in the middle of a cow pasture, which kind of has some validity. But isn't it amazing how God takes the things of man and confounds them and raises them up for his glory? And I'll say, Mom, I, just, I, I need you, Lord. I need you. And my mom will just start worshiping. She'll just start worshiping. And that's when I say, Lord, would you send the rain of your presence right now? And that's what's about to happen in about 10 to 15 minutes when I get ready to call you to this altar. The reign of God's presence is about to fall. A refreshing where there's been a dryness and a barrenness, the Holy Spirit brings a much-needed refreshing, Joel 2, chapter 2, verse 23 through 29. A restoration where there has been loss, the Spirit of God comes in the form of rain into your life and mine, and he restores us, Isaiah 28 and 11. And again, needing to be refreshed does not mean you backslid or you sinned. It simply means in the heat of the battle, Lord, I need a fresh infusion of who you are. I need that refreshing. And I want you to be honest with yourself and honest with God. And how many right now by an upraised hand would say, Pastor Andy, that's me. I need a refreshing and a restoration. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand all over the room right now, right now, right now. Look around, friend. Look around. I do this so you know that you are not the only one. Because the devil will isolate your thinking and you'll think, I'm the only one that's going through it. And you're not. This church hasn't even begun to see the anointing and the power of God that he wants to flow through this place. You haven't even begun to see the miracles and the healings. You've just scratched the surface. Don't let the devil isolate your thinking. The prophet Isaiah, who went through very, very personal trials, he gives us the exact solution to these difficult times. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be Come on now. They shall run and not be, and they shall walk and not faint. What that's telling us is you can have strength in the midst of the struggle and not allow the spiritual attack to steal your joy. Friends, God knew there'd be times we would feel a battle fatigue. So he says, I want you to wait on me. One translation says, hope in the Lord. That doesn't mean to sit around and be passive and complacent. It doesn't mean to sit around and be so negative that after God moves on a Sunday morning, you go out to the lobby and tell everybody, well, that was great, but God can't heal me because I've already gone to WebMD and I know why it's not going to help. And suddenly now, the devil steals that joy. They that wait upon the Lord. I'm looking at the clock and I'm about to run out of time, but I've got to share this story in closing that I didn't share for service so call the ones that were, not he, that were he, at first service and say, oh, you missed it. Tonight at 6 o'clock, I'll preach part two of this message. And we're going to come and lay hands on the sick. And I believe God's going to get an amazing glory out of it. 
When I first started my ministry almost 30 years ago, I had just come off the road with traveling with Carmen Ministries, and I sang with Carmen. Some of you don't remember him. You're too young. But I sang with Carmen Ministries for many, many years. And I had just come off the road, and I was at my home church in Southern California in Los Angeles, and the pastor came to me, and he said, Hey, Randy. I said, Hey, pastor. What's up? And he said, uh, I want you to start a bus ministry. I said, Oh, really? He said, Yeah. I said, Where do you want to go? He said, I want to go to Ghost Town. I said, It was a Scooby-Doo moment. Oh, Ghost Town? He said, yes, I want you to go to Ghost Town. I said, Pastor, you need to understand. They call it Ghost Town because the Crips and the Bloods are running that area. If you go over 18 years old, you're considered a veteran. And Pastor, you've got to have skin a lot darker than mine and hair that springs back for more to go there. You know what he said? He said, Randy, I'm Lily White. That's why I'm sending you. And so I announced on Sunday that I'd be teaching on evangelism, that I'd be teaching on reaching out. And people were shouting and hooting and and on on Sunday. But, you know, they had the whole week to think about it. And that Saturday came and no one showed up for training. And I walked to the pastor and I said, hey, pastor, no one's here. He goes, don't worry about it. Just announce it tomorrow. We announced it for two solid months. No one showed up on the Saturdays. And finally, I turned to pastor and I said, listen, they don't want anything to do with this. He said, well, you're still going. I said, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. I said, no, really, dude, I'm not. He goes, you want to get paid? I said, yes, I do. He said, you're going. That just ain't right. What I didn't know was the, uh, the deacons in our church we had been donated a school bus from Los Angeles Unified School District, and they took the, uh, the bus, and they took it to Earl Scheib to have it painted because they wanted to help me, but they didn't want to go. And so I took it to Earl Scheib. In Los Angeles, California, down in the hood, Earl Scheib will paint any car for ninety nine ninety five. That's Earl Scheib. And they didn't have enough paint to cover the whole bus in one color. So they told the board members, what do you want us to do? And they said, well, just paint it whatever you got. It came out 14 different colors. It looked like the Partridge family bus. And it said on it, the name of our church, and then it said the happy bus. And it had clowns all over it with big red noses and balloons. And they pulled that into the parking lot. And I looked at that. I said, brother, you're going to get me killed in the hood in that thing. I'm a moving target. Well, that Saturday came that we were supposed to go out and hand out the leaflets to tell everyone that we'd be picking them up the next day. And not a single person showed up. Les Davis and I, the bus driver, was there. And so I called Pastor on the office phone. I said, hey, Pastor Dave, um, this is Randy. Yeah, I know who it is. I recognize your voice. Duh. And uh, I said, well, they're not here. He goes, well, you're still going. And we went through the whole thing. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. All right. I walked out into the parking lot, and I headed to the bus. Talk about weary. The thought process was, no one's here. The church doesn't want this. pastor's just being stubborn. He doesn't care that I'm going to die in the neighborhood. And I'm scared. And I'm walking to the bus, and then all of a sudden, 
around the corner comes a Volkswagen bus, like a 1965, 66 Volkswagen bus. And it pulls in, and the doors open, and four Samoan sisters got out, the Laulu sisters. And I don't know if you know Samoan people, but they're very large and in charge. They didn't have any shoes on because their feet was like size 12 or 13, and they're real thick. And they came out with the, their ialava-lavas and their little ukuleles, and they came walking out, and they came over to me like this, all four of them. And they looked at me, they looked at me, and I looked at them, and they looked at me. And here's what they said. They said, little pastor, which is always very encouraging, you know, especially when you're weary. Little pastor, we would have been here a long time ago, but we've been fasting and praying, and God's finally released us. Don't worry. We'll take care of you. (laughs) So there I went, the mighty man of God. I put one Samoan sister here and one right here. One right here and one right here. And we went walking down Martin Luther King Avenue in Los Angeles, California, in the heart of the hood. And I'm handing out flyers. I did not move from the center of that place. Under their arms, I was like. And the whole time they're singing. In Samoan. And then in English. Believe it or not, sometimes even in a heavenly language. And they were singing. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. And big old tears would flow. That next day, I got on the bus, and the board members and the deacons, they still didn't want to go, but they cleaned the bus, and they put those little Lysol trees on all the windows. It it smelled like Lysol, Pine Sol. The whole Sol family was on that bus. But I was weary. Weariness causes you to forget all the miracles that God has done in the past. And in the midst of all the things that were happening and all the miracles of the bus and the sisters, and I said, Lord, you can't do this. This is crazy. Standing on that front step, Pastor Kent, of that bus, I looked over at those tenement buildings and people started streaming. And I'm watching and they got on the bus, and it went from smelling like Lysol and Pine Sol to alcohol and tobacco, body odor. I literally opened the door of the bus and put my arm through the rail, and I was trying to lean out the window, the door, because I said, Lord, it really stinks in here. This is nasty. And the Lord said, yeah. That's what Lazarus smelled like before he came out. I said, well, Lord, I'd never smelt like that. So pious. The Lord said, oh, no, you smelt worse because you knew better. Weariness. One of the last stops, I looked out, and there was a little boy standing there. I later found out his name was Robbie. He had a big afro. He was wearing basketball shorts, Michael Jordan tank top, which was too big for him. His shoes were untied. It's the cutest little thing, probably about... I don't know, seven years old or so, and, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and he goes, who are you? I said, well, I'm Pastor Randy. Who are you? He said, my name is Robbie. In his hand, he's got a flyer. He said, I just need to know one thing. Does Jesus love my daddy? Those of you going to Kansas City, get ready. 
I said, oh, mijo, yes, baby, Jesus loves your daddy. He looks at me and he says, you better be sure. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. You know, it's, it's easy to say those things when you don't know the circumstances. Well, he comes to our church, and I need to back up a little bit and tell you that I had several people in our church that were angry that we were doing these things, and there was one lady that was really angry. I called her Sister Dumbbell, and her husband was Brother Sounding Brass. I never said it to their face. I always said it in staff meeting. And Sister Dumbbell was angry. She, had, she headed up our women's ministry. She was angry because she said, we just put new seat covers on the pews, and, and they're going to come in here, and it's going to smell. And, and so I came up with the idea that if they come forward and give their life to the Lord, I want you to take them all over to Sister Dumbbell's classroom and sit them all in there. The joy of the Lord is my... So, <laughs> really, I'm almost done. I gave the altar call that day, and to my amazement, every single person from that bus stood and ran to the altar. They all stood up, and they went to Sister Dumbbell's class, all except for Robbie. He knelt right there in the altar. And here's what he said. Jesus, will you save my daddy? Jesus, will you save my daddy? We had a large balcony. And I'm on the platform. And I looked up and I saw Sister Dumbbell in the balcony. She stood. And if you could walk around, there were stairs that came into the sanctuary. And I'm watching her walk, you know. Remember, I'm weary, and I'm watching her, and as she's coming down the stairs, I thought, if that old crazy woman comes and causes problems, Lord, I'm going to knock her out, Lord. I'm going to take the Holy Ghost 5 and lay right low. I'll pray for her later, Lord. When you're weary, (laughs) it's humorous, but you forget all that God has done in the past. She walked all the way down, and she she knelt down, and she put her arms around that little boy, she kissed him in her, on his cheek, and she began to weep. And her husband, the head usher, Brother Sounding Brass, he came down, and he put his arms around her. And I watched a little boy lead about 800 people into all-out personal revival. I want the musicians to come quickly. Let me tell you the rest of the story as they're coming. I'm doing pretty good because what evangelist do you know can end like I'm doing, let alone a Puerto Rican evangelist? But they all came. The next week, I went to pick up Rob, and his arm was in a sling. I said, baby, what happened? He goes, oh, don't worry about me, pastor. I just need to know one thing. Does Jesus love my daddy? I said, oh, yeah, Jesus loves your daddy. He said, you better be sure. Talk about, I'm not going to allow what I see to affect what I know. He came to the altar, and he started screaming out, Jesus, save my daddy. And they all gathered, we all gathered around him. This went on for month after month after month. Picked him up one time. His face was so battered, I could barely see his, his eye was closed shut. His nose was swollen. His lip was cracked. I had a little boy on the bus that I nicknamed 411. And I realized, I realized that he knew all the information in the neighborhood. And 411 
it, you know, he was Mr. Info. And so I'm on the bus, and he grabbed my shirt, my jacket. And he said, Pastor, Pastor. I said, what, honey? He said, do you want to know why Robbie's so beat up? I said, yeah. He said, well, his bedroom wall is our living room wall. And his dad beats him up every Saturday because he goes to your church. I could see him on the corner standing out there, and Les Davis, the bus driver, was on the bus. And by the way, the bus still smelled like a barnyard. You say, well, I thought you said they all got saved. Yeah, they did, but it's called sanctification. When you get saved, you don't wake up a perfect person. It takes time for discipleship. And I could see him on the corner, and Les Davis, the bus driver, said, hey, pastor, what are you going to do? Well, about that time, 411, he grabs me and he goes, hey, Pastor Andy. I said, what, honey? He said, see that really big man over there in church? This guy looked like the Incredible Hulk. He was coming out of the building and he's walking towards the corner. And 411 said, Pastor, that's Robbie's daddy and he don't like you. And remember, Satan will create a train of thought. And the thought came, this man is going to hurt you. So I came up with a plan. I said, okay, Les, I want you to drive about five miles an hour. I'm going to put my arm through the rail and hang out the bus door. When I get there, I'm going to grab Rob, pull him in. You hit the gas, and we'll be on the way to church before that crazy man gets to the corner. So I'm hanging out, Martin Luther King Avenue, heart of Los Angeles, and the whole bus is, go, Pastor, go, Pastor, go, Pastor. And the Samoans are, we bring the sacrifice of prayer. It's a zoo. And I'm hanging out the door. And I'm just about to grab him. His arm is still in a sling. And he goes like this. And we go by him. And Les Davis stops the bus. I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'll never forget it. He said, get out, mighty man of God. I'm the least of my tribe. I didn't have to get out. Rob walked up. You guys just play softly for me, please. And his dad's standing next to him. He's all out of breath, you know. He goes, Pastor, I've been trying to get your attention. Yes. Does Jesus love my daddy? Now, let's face it. It was easier to say yes before I knew what was going on. And when he said, does Jesus love my daddy? Everything in me wanted to say, nope. But I said, yes, he does. He looked at me and he said, did he go to church? And wouldn't you know the only place for that man to sit was right with the Samoan sisters who had prayed him in? And they sang in his ear the whole way, we bring the sacrifice of praise. That day I got up to speak and preach and we had a balcony, as I told you, and Rob stood in the center aisle with his arm in a sling. And he looked at me and he said, hey! Hey! I wanted to say, shh, this is the house of God. You know, real religious life. He didn't care. See, when you're coming out of weariness, all you care about is God setting you free. 
Does Jesus love my daddy? I said, yes. He gave me a thumbs up with his good hand. He came all the way down about four rows, took a hard right. He was stepping on feet and kicking Bibles and knocking things over. He grabbed his dad with his good hand. He started to pull like this. His dad stood up, and I saw him coming. So I got as high as I could on the platform so I could look into his belly. And he looked at me, and Rob went to the altar. Sister Dumbbell came. I need to tell you now. Her name was Gladys Pearson. They put their arms around him. He said, Preacher, can Jesus love a man like me? And before you say yes, you need to know I beat my son up every Saturday night because he comes to your church. I have a wife that I've prostituted out on the corners of Pacific Coast Highway in Western. I got three sons in Terminal Island Prison, that's the jailhouse in Los Angeles Harbor, who are carrying my drugs. Can Jesus love a man like me? I looked at him and I said, sir, not only does Jesus love a man like you, but if you were the only man left on planet Earth, he still would have sent his only begotten son to die on the cross and rise again on the third day just for you. What he said changed my ministry forever. He said, okay, I don't want the Jesus of all these religious people. What? He said, I don't want the stained glass Jesus. I've tried that and it's failed me. He said, I want the Jesus he has. Because I couldn't beat it out of him. I couldn't shake it out of him. I couldn't scare it out of him. Whatever it is he has, I want it. I need it. I've got to have it right now. We said the prayer and that man kneels down and this time he puts his arms around his son and he kisses him. For the next year and a half, they go to the corner of Pacific Coast Highway and Western and as his wife comes out to be a prostitute, he finally convinces her, you don't have to do this. Jesus loves you and so do I. And I'll never forget the day when the center doors opened and here came Rob with his mom and dad in one hand. His two brothers were released from Terminal Island Prison. They're, they're all in the ministry now because God understands when you call and I would never embarrass anyone. I never would embarrass anyone but father right now in the name of jesus whatever this is the spiritual attack of weariness father i pray that he would know as robbie did that you hear him calling you hear him calling in the midnight hour lord you know him by name in the name of jesus in the name of jesus that father that right now healing would flow in their body the same power that touched a little boy in Los Angeles. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. Church, I want you praying right now. Because there's miracles that are breaking out all over this room right now. Right now. Right now. Right now.